Hey, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now, a quick look ahead at everything we'll be covering. First, hands-on defibrillation. Next, fluoroquinolones might not make your chest explode. After that, figuring out if your intestines have been inverted. Then, EMS handling of benzos. And finally, putting a stop to the abuse of the elderly. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the magnanimous Sam Parnell, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. The first article from this week was titled, Best Evidence Topic 1, Can Hands-On Defibrillation Be Performed Safely? Out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. I would challenge you that there are very few things more iconically doctor-like than yelling clear and getting away from something before you shock them, or rather, I guess they shock you back. Is it possible that we've been wrong about this the whole time? Could our slogan have been unnecessary? Let's take a look. Ideally, the more CPR, the better. And minimizing the interruptions to CPR has indeed been shown to improve both brain and heart perfusion, as well as improving the chances of neurologically intact survival. So when patients are in VTAC or VFib, we may want to stop CPR in order to defibrillate since that's what's really going to save their life. But if it doesn't work on the first try, then perhaps it would be best if we didn't stop CPR while shocking. Some previous studies have suggested that using an insulated barrier may allow for hands-on defibrillation. What does the evidence have to say? So this was a best evidence topic report made up of a review of six studies performed since the year 2000, looking at hands-on defibrillation. A total of 721 biphasic shocks were delivered, with joules ranging from 30 to 360. None of these shocks were detected in the rescuers if they were using polyethylene gloves, electrical safety gloves, a resuscitation blanket, firefighter gloves, or using a mechanical compression device. As well, use of any of these barriers was not associated with injury to the patient. Conversely, if the rescuers were barehanded, wearing nitrile gloves, or using neoprene pads, then perceptible shocks were present. Important to keep in mind is that these studies did nothing to address the added complexity of wet patients, saying perhaps it had been raining outside, or that stress might actually degrade the barriers that you'd be using for compression if you have to do this for a longer period. So it looks like as long as you're using the right barriers, then hands-on defibrillation may be safe. But real-world studies are going to be important before this becomes standard of care. All the same, though, in the next decade, it looks like yelling clear might just kind of age you, and little kids are going to have to find a new way to play doctor. For now, though, try to charge the defibrillator between pulse checks, and then make sure you get high-quality CPR with the shortest possible pulses. And the next article has two citations. First, the association of fluoroquinolones with the risk of aortic aneurysm and aortic dissection. And then next, the association of infections and the use of fluoroquinolones with the risk of aortic aneurysm and aortic dissection, both out of JAMA Internal Medicine. 
Fluoroquinolones have a really bad rap for causing tendon rupture, which I don't know about you, but just sounds like something that's just awful. There are more other bad associations, though, like hypoglycemia, altered mental status, QT prolongation, and even sudden death. Prior studies in the BMJ and the Journal of American College of Cardiology have raised concerns that fluoroquinolones might also be associated with aortic aneurysms or dissections. But this sounds really drastic. I'd really hate for my chest to explode just because I'm trying to treat an infection. So this study was a large U.S. insurance database study using propensity matching for 85 possible confounders. What they found was that aortic aneurysms or dissections were very rarely associated with the use of fluoroquinolones versus using azithromycin for a pneumonia, with a hazard ratio of 2.57. But there is no change in risk compared to trimethoprine sulfamethoxazole for the treatment of UTIs. So I'm not sure about you, but it doesn't seem like a systemic effect of fluoroquinolones would change dramatically based on the infection it was treating. So this seems a little bit fishy. When they compared fluoroquinolones to amoxicillin, the incidence rate was very low, less than 0.01%, but still higher in fluoroquinolones with a hazard ratio of 1.54. However, when they looked at the patients who had baseline imaging prior to antibiotics and had no detectable aortic problems at that time, the association was no longer significant. Conveniently, the other study in the same issue of JAMA Internal Medicine was a case control study that found that certain infections were associated with aortic pathology and that fluoroquinolones were not. So more likely, it's the infection causing the aortic aneurysms or dissections than this tenuous link with fluoroquinolones. In a spoonful, these two papers call into question the association between fluoroquinolones and aortic aneurysms or dissections. Next, the third article, titled Evidence-Based Diagnostic Test Accuracy of History, Physical Exam, and Imaging for Intussusception, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Intussusception, which is like telescoping of the intestines from the Latin root taking within, I kind of think of it like prolapse, but like on the inside, if that makes sense. Now, anyways, how do we like to make diagnoses? Well, we take a history, we do an exam, and of course, we get an x-ray just for good measure. Are these things helpful, though? What if they don't have abdominal pain? What if they don't have bloody stools? Still feel confident? What if the x-ray is normal? What should you do? Should you get an ultrasound? Don't panic. This study will help. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of 13 largely retrospective studies, not all of which covered all of the aspects of your evaluation, but pulled together they would. What they came up with was a lot of sensitivities and specificities and all the other numbers that come along with those numbers. And here's what those numbers boil down to. History and exam are not accurate in trying to rule in or rule out intussusception, but will lead you to knowing when to do more tests. And x-ray also wasn't really good at ruling out anything, though negative ones will nudge the post-test probability down at least a little bit. Something that will actually be useful is POCUS. And nicely, this study focused on ultrasounds done in the emergency department, which did a good job of ruling in or out intussusception. So all in all, if you're getting some of the classic features on history of a patient, like a child with vomiting, abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, a palpable mass, then consider skipping the x-ray and just go straight to ultrasound. In a spoonful, history, exam, and x-rays were not accurate predictors of intussusception, but POCUS was. 
Next, the fourth article titled Pre-Hospital Midazolam Use and Outcomes Among Patients with Out-of-Hospital Status Epilepticus out of the Journal of Neurology. Status Epilepticus. Not just a general from ancient Greece, but also a really dangerous and unfortunate condition with poor outcomes when not treated aggressively. Immediate benzodiazepines should be given, even when these patients are first being treated by EMS providers in the field. Unfortunately, undertreatment in the field is fairly common and increases the rate of poor outcomes. These researchers analyzed EMS medical records from a single agency for adult patients with out-of-hospital status epilepticus over a five-year period. This agency recommended giving a single dose of midazolam at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 6 milligrams IM, IV, IO, or 5 milligrams intranasally. Of the nearly 39,000 seizure encounters looked at, 87% were status epilepticus. Of those, only 62% were given midazolam at all and none received the national guideline-based dose of 10 mg IM. Intramuscular wasn't even the most common route. Intranasal and intravenous came before it. So of the patients that received any dose of midazolam at all, a rescue dose was needed on top of that in 18% of them. But of those that received a higher initial dose, they were less likely to need a second dose with an odds ratio of 0.8 without any association with an increase in adverse events. So while this is just a retrospective study, it reveals a kind of scary gap in practice. Ensuring appropriate protocols may be crucial to getting better outcomes. In a spoonful in this single EMS agency study, most patients with status epilepticus were not receiving proper midazolam administration. Higher doses were associated with better responses and no worse outcomes. And the last article titled Identifying Injury Patterns Associated with Physical Elder Abuse, Analysis of Legally Adjudicated Cases, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. In a serious note, adults might not be just big children, but the elderly kind of are in some ways. Abuse of the elderly is actually quite common, estimated happening to 5-10% to of older adults annually. And part of the problem that's driving these atrociously high numbers is that it's critically underrecognized. So like with many at-risk populations, the ER is kind of a great leveler. Many of these patients will pass through your department, and often that's with the complaint of an unintentional fall. Being able to pick up on injury patterns that are concerning for abuse is an important skill that we all have to actively foster. This study was a case control study of injury patterns in 78 abuse cases with visible injury at a large urban academic emergency department who were matched with a similar group of control patients. These elderly abuse cases were pulled from legal records of successfully prosecuted cases of physical abuse in victims over 60 years old. Now then, compared with real unintentional fall patients, the abuse victims were more likely to have bruising in 78% compared to 54%. This probably won't tell you much, though, in general. It's where the bruising is that's more likely to matter. Injury to the face and cheek were also more common in abuse patients, especially on the left side of the face, i.e. because most people are right-handed. All incidents of injury to the ears and neck were only found in abuse cases. Lastly, injury to the chest, abdomen, and back were also more common in abuse, seen in 19% of abuse cases, 
which is about five times more likely than in unintentional fall cases. Things that were less common in abuse victims were fractures and injury to the lower extremities. If you think about these patterns, then they make sense. Abuse victims were generally more likely to be injured on the head and neck without injury to their extremities. Of the victims without visible injury, they reported pain in similar distributions. So consider digging a little bit deeper on exactly what happened when some of these patterns present themselves in your department. Keep in mind, though, that this is kind of a biased sample of only prosecuted cases, which by definition are probably more likely to be obvious than most. In a spoonful, elder abuse is common. These patients are more likely to present with injuries to the head, neck, and torso compared with true fall patients, who are more likely to have fractures and injury to the lower extremities. Now then, that's all for this week. Let's do a quick wrap-up and summary of everything that we learned today. First, yelling clear is no more, or at least might not be in the coming years. Hands-on defibrillation seems to be safe as long as you've got the right barrier. Second, you can probably stop worrying about your aorta exploding just because you have to take some fluoroquinolones. Third, POCUS came out on top in assessing for intussusception. History, exam, and x-rays don't really seem to paint an accurate picture on their own. Fourth, go big or your patient might not go home. Appropriate and guideline-based status epilepticus treatment is paramount in the out-of-hospital setting. Fifth, keep an eye out for the older generation. If they're coming in with a history of fall, but mostly injuries to the upper half of their body, then be thorough. And that is totally it for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.